You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. sounds you're listening to were recorded in the Edmonton River Valley. For the past few months, myself, Sonic Patel, and me, Elizabeth Dowdell, have been researching the history and importance of the River Valley. If you're a local listener, you'll probably understand our motivation. Something about this space draws people in. Over the next two episodes, we'll take you on a journey through the history of the River Valley. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6 the historic and present territory of the Cree, Métis, Dene, Blackfoot, and many other first people that live and gather here. This week, we discuss the history of Edmonton, touching on Indigenous culture and history. We are not Indigenous peoples, and these are not our stories. We are privileged to listen to and respectfully share this information. As you learn about the ways that different peoples have lived with this land, we hope you consider your own relationship with nature, The Edmonton River Valley is just one space, but it's a place with many layers of meaning and value. It's a place of sustenance, of economy, of gathering, of danger, and of conflict, in many cases, all at the same time. This week, we talk about how the different peoples and settlements in the Edmonton region have been shaped and influenced by the North Saskatchewan River Valley. But before we get into this history, Let's get a little more familiar with the River Valley. So when we say the River Valley, we're talking about a park system along the north and south banks of the North Saskatchewan River. The whole system is almost 50 kilometers in length and 7,400 hectares in area. That's eight times bigger than Vancouver's Stanley Park and 22 times larger than New York's Central Park. This makes the River Valley Park System the largest expanse of urban parkland in North America. If you live or have visited Edmonton, you might have gone for a walk along the river in Louise McKinney Park, hiked through the McKinnon Ravine, had lunch by the Funicular, played Frisbee by the Kinsmen, or if you're like us, you might just go for a quick walk between classes and enjoy some nature. This week, we go through the history of the River Valley, a history that is long, complex, and entangled. To help us with this journey, I sat down with Amber Paquette. My name is Amber Paquette, and uh, recently I have the honor of being named Edmonton's Historian Laureate. I am the sixth Historian Laureate, and my hope and my main focus is to kind of shed more light and uh, bring more knowledge, I guess, around um, Edmonton's historic roots as, um, you know, uh, a First Nations uh, Métis uh, homeland. So I have a variety of projects that I'm hoping to uh, bring to the public that really um, show Edmonton's history and just that that timeless occupation going back uh, many, many, many years. As Historian Laureate of Edmonton, Amber helped guide us through the many histories entwined with this place, starting long before Edmonton was recognizable. As early as people could move into Edmonton, they were here. um, And they were mostly um, living along the waterways because they were our highways, the rivers were our highways. And we know that one of these sites um, is very old, about 8,000 years, and it's um, right in the middle of Edmonton. It's uh, in Rossdale by the Walterdale Bridge. That goes back about 8,000 years, and Rossdale has continuous occupations. You see, you know, people foraging for foods, you know, hunting, but there's also um, 
quite very, very early, I would say even Clovis time occupation, 12,000 so years ago. Edmonton is still located along um, a very interesting historic trade route where you see the distribution of Clovis material, Clovis people being a certain time in North America. You know, for as far as Alaska to, um, to, to Mexico, it just really just kind of goes to show that although it's so far north and seems remote, um, it really has never been a, a place of separateness. It's always been a place of, a, of connection. Edmonton was located on a historic trade route, I would say kind of like one of the very most northern outposts of this trade route. So you can get to Edmonton through many bodies of water, and it is uh, this special uh, natural meeting place um, between the parkland forests and the prairies. So there's a lot of reasons why uh, First, First Nations people particularly chose Edmonton. It's because of all those natural boundaries. Edmonton has over, I don't know how many, over 240 plus archaeological sites just in its, um, just in its city alone, spread out all along the river valley. So that kind of really just shows its, um, its historic and almost timeless uh, occupation. So Amber fact-checked herself for us, and there are actually over 740 archaeological sites in the Edmonton area. To help understand Indigenous perspectives about the River Valley, I also sat down with Dr. Dwayne Donald, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Education at the University of Alberta. I asked Dr. Donald why the River Valley was important for the Indigenous people who occupied the area then and now. To begin with, it's important <laughs> to point out that, of course, Edmonton was just one place where people gathered. Well, the place we call Edmonton is just one place in that beautiful river valley and its whole length that, that people gathered. And so the river all along has its, its significance and its prominence. Yeah, I mean, the way I understand it is, is actually quite simple and at the same time quite complex. It's, uh, it's uh, about life it's, and it's about understanding what sustains us, what, what allows us, what keep us, keeps us alive and, uh, you know, there's, lo there's lots of sacred teachings about water that, uh, you know, elders in this area, beautiful elders could tell you a lot more about. And uh, the sacred relationship that, that, and the sacred teachings that are associated with water. But, um, you know, just a little bit that I can share is, is just that, that very fundamental understanding that uh, most of our bodies are comprised of water. And there's a connection, of course, between uh, childbirth and water. And uh, so this is about renewal. This is about renewing ourselves and those kinds of things. And, uh... Edmonton has been home to people for an astonishingly long period of time. A history of trade and exchange is layered into our river valley. Immediately, we can recognize why the river valley was important for people who called this place home. The place in the river right down from uh, the main campus of the U of A where the fort was eventually built and where the provincial legislative building is now, right, right in that stretch of river that basically flows west to east is uh, understood to have been an ancient gathering place. It's not considered a coincidence that, you know, we continue to gather here. 
So you can imagine that, um, you know, as a early First Nations person living here in Edmonton's River Valley, you might live somewhere such as Mary Low Bay Park. There's not a sign or any kind of indication that these places are there, but they're all connected to each other. You know, um, you find uh, the same type of stonework in Mary Low Bay Park as you do in Strathcona Science Park. So it would be like you would live there and you'd go to work every day at the quarry, bring some material back. Maybe you'd go fishing um, on the river valley. So yeah, the whole area was extensively used by people. Though the valley was a place of gathering and sustenance for humans for generations, we can't forget that the river valley is also home to many creatures. You know, one, one thing that's also been shared with me is that that uh, Amiskwachi, Amisk is how you say beaver, Wachi refers to a hill or a mountain. So Amiskwachi, Beaver Hills, that name has to do, of course, with the, the tremendous number of beaver that existed in that particular area. Uh, who knows how long ago it was that people observed that and gave it that name, but uh, those beaver hills, which are basically on the north side of the river and uh, the provincial legislative building sits on, you know, is part of that. Those hills were said to have been basically uh, thick with beaver and their, their business. So it's a, it's a place uh, that they really preferred to be and were quite active. There's lots of different stories uh, you know, that I've heard about beaver, but one, one thing that I think listeners should know in the stories that I've heard is that beavers are, are considered to sort of be like the wise ones of the, of the animal world, I guess I would say, and in our world in general. And so they have, they have a role as kind of wisdom holders, wisdom keepers. And uh, there's lots of stories about things that have been learned from them. And what, what I've learned is that they, they generally were involved in trying to get all forms of life to try to work together. But one of the things that, you know, beaver are known for, obviously, if you think about it, is, is their connection to water and the ways in which they protect water and uh, the ways in which they care for water so that it's available to other forms of life. This, this is a sort of the, the resonance of these stories and the significance of the beaver in connection to the health of that river and so on. And, you know, there are stories that when newcomers first arrived that, that, that people in general were reluctant to trap uh, beaver and trade them just because of that prominence. And what we know is, of course, that changed over the years and the beaver fur trade became very busy. And uh, there were lots of beaver cults sent to Europe and Eastern Canada. But in the beginning, the people were reluctant because of uh, the, the connection that beaver had and then stories that were there um, in connection to that. So. So I always say to people, Edmonton is a beaver place. And Edmonton, because of it's a, it's a beaver place, it has that sacred connotation that I think we need to hold on to. And um, one of the things that I do when I'm in the River Valley, as often as I can, is I, is I watch for beaver presence and, and beaver activity. And I try to, uh, I guess, honor that. I try to encourage them right, to, uh, 
to stick around because they have a lot, just like buffalo, they have a lot to do with the sacred ecology of this ecosystem. While the River Valley provided resources to the indigenous people for millennia, the landscape of Edmonton would change drastically with the arrival of European colonialists who made their way west to access resources in what, from their perspective, was a new land. Turning the clock forward a little bit to you know, the arrival of European colonialists, could you share some insight into the role the River Valley played in the development of the forts that precluded the settlements of Edmonton? Yes, um, it's a very exciting time. Um, one of my favorites, personally. It's very much where my family emerges in the historical record, written record as well. Um, and we also have oral, oral histories to kind of uh, to join us with this information. Edmonton, of course, is chosen as a fur trade hub because it was already for, like already a hub for trade. Just kind of to, to connect the context back to what was already happening before, you know, Europeans arrived. You, you could find, uh, you know, turquoise from Mexico or, um, you know, ma uh, Mississippian clay pipes from the East Coast, um, you know, as far as in, in Alberta. So really, really exotic items. And those exotic items came, you know, up the rivers. So when Europeans arrived, they were already aware that these were, you know, viable trading routes. So it's not like they kind of just came here and decided, okay, we're going we're to start trading. We're going to use these routes and we're going to talk to these people early first uh, Europeans are usually French and uh, or Scottish employed by the Northwest Company or the Hudson's Bay Company. And we have actually a very high surprising amount of First Nations and Métis people who were employed by the Northwest Company and the, and the Hudson's Bay Company. And I, I often feel like we kind of get um, a, a narrative that the fur trade was, uh, you know, started by Europeans and was a European-led and controlled faction. But that's just certainly not the case. First Nations trading roles heavily, heavily would depend upon a European trader coming out and being able to um, form kinship networks with the people that he intends to trade with. So the women were actually the most important aspects when it came to the fur trade. And there's actually a lot of evidence to suggest that women were very adamant on uh, facilitating this trade because it was women's goods that were the most widely traded. Almost about 80 to 90 percent was women's goods and textiles and beads. So it's interesting to view the, uh, the fur trade from more of a, a different perspective than we're often uh, used to hearing. So Edmonton, it does uh, bring um, a very colorful variety of polyethnicity and cultures um, very early, very early on about the... Uh, 1690s to the 1700s onward. The colonization of Canada by Europeans was largely driven by the desire to acquire land and raw materials. To collect these, the governments of Britain and France established the Hudson's Bay Company and Northwest Company. As these European traders worked west towards the Pacific, they built relationships with the Indigenous peoples they met along the way. We see an emergence of something not often mentioned in Edmonton's uh, historical timeline, and that would be the, um, the Nehuapuat, uh, or the Iron Confederacy, which begins about the 1600s. And that is a, an emergence of uh, Cree middlemen and Nakoda, that's what Pwat means, means Nakoda. Nehewa just means uh, Cree. So Nehewa Pwat means uh, Cree Nakoda or Cree Stony. 
So the, um, the Cree, who begin far out east in northern Canada, are a specific dialect of Cree. They're um, swampy woods Cree. And there were um, actual Plains Cree who were already in the Edmonton area prior to some people's belief. We do get the narrative that the Cree only come out here uh, with the fur trade, but in fact, it was just a specific dialect of Cree that came out with the fur trade. So the Cree are originally the, the middlemen between um, you know, the Northwest Company and the Hudson's Bay Company and First Nations, various First Nations. But the Cree, the companies didn't find them, I guess, as valuable and they were definitely more expensive to employ. So when you have the emergence of Europeans, um, you know, making these, these formal political and uh, familiar bonds through marriage with women, we have the emergence of um, mixed-blooded children in the Métis. And these children kind of fill in the role of the Cree middlemen. Something that's not often mentioned kind of in the midst of all this is the change in which all these people are going through. Because, uh, you know, diseases, smallpox are, are costing people a very, very heavy toll. We see an otherwise bountiful, bustling place that was once you know, Canada and Alberta kind of go into a no man's land. We, we lose about 90% of the population of First Nations um, over, over several, uh, several centuries. So with this vacancy of Cree and uh, First Nations middlemen, um, the Métis um, were very much kind of filling in those roles and those vacancies as well. The Hudson's Bay and Northwest Company established several trade posts along their routes west. Many of those have evolved into villages, towns, and cities of Canada. Looking at the Edmonton River Valley as a place of trade and economy, in this period we see the construction of Edmonton Forts. Edmonton has, as we know, five, possibly six locations. Uh, they, they say six because there may have been a sixth location in Cloverdale, but they are not able to excavate that kind of area. Fort Augustus was the first one that was brought by the Northwest Company, and it's later abandoned. And the Hudson's Bay Company comes out here as well, and they are, um, of course, British, um, British colonial, who have very different policies than the Northwest Company. The Northwest Company and the Hudson's Bay Company have a little bit of a it was kind of violent but it was a little bit comical i kind of find because they would do things like what well, the northwest company would build a build a fort on one side of the river and the hudson's bay company would come along and build the fort on the other side of the river and they would do that over and over again until the northwest company realized that if they started building fake forts the hudson's bay company would follow suit and waste all their resources and energy and then the northwest company would just quickly abandon and uh, continue elsewhere. So they would do lots of things like that, and there was uh, a lot of dirty business involved. And things kind of just came to a head in 1821, where they really, um, they all had it. They had to get along. It was a forced amalgamation in 1821, where the Northwest Company and the Hudson's Bay Company merge into one. And this really changes things out, out here, and especially in um, Edmonton, in the surrounding areas, because the Métis and the First Nations by this point have become very wealthy and prominent off the trade. And there are more of the people in control than the actual company, just because of how many assets they have and they you know the, the extendedness of their families. You know, the more extended your family is and the more fur resources you have. So with the forest amalgamation in 1821, you see a lot of what they what are known as um, free traders kind of walk off and leave and, and form their own kind of um, distinct bands and groups, but many of them do continue to stay and live in the area and even do continue to work for the Hudson's Bay Company. Many of them did. Yeah, so Edmonton, it's, it has 
it has rebuilds for various different reasons. Um, usually it was due to flooding or running out of firewood. It was never burned down by anybody at any point, um, contrary to some, uh, some beliefs. And its final location, of course, was where the, um, close to where the legislature building is today. We have at Fort Edmonton Park is, of course, a replica. And the fort is actually very, very close. It's almost identical to what it did look like. There's some minor inaccuracies in some of the buildings. But there was actually real blueprints and maps drawn of the fort in 1848 by two um, British, British spies, actually. They're British spies uh, masquerading as, I believe, artists. <laughs> and they were coming through to, to determine if Fort Edmonton in 1846 had um, any potential as a military fort. And they found out, no, it did not have any potential as a military fort because it was made out of wood and could be burnt down with ease. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting time. Um, and and that, that Iron Confederacy I've mentioned is, is a really kind of understated point in the narrative where they were very much in control of what was happening in Edmonton and the trade. Which is why um, we have people like, you know, Chief Factor John Rowand, who was Chief Factor of Fort Edmonton for very many, many years. Um, he went to such great lengths um, to impress upon the First Nations in this area because they were very, very wealthy and very prominent. And Fort Edmonton is kind of at, its, at everybody's mercy outside of its own boundaries. The other interesting thing about Fort Edmonton, part, uh, Fort Edmonton itself is that... Um, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a very like dominant 80 to 90% First Nations population within the fort. And even then, most of that is women. And about half of the year, Fort Edmonton is manned by women. It's like an all women kind of affair. It's very interesting. Because of course, you have the men and the traders who go away uh, on the rivers every year. For half of the year, they're, they're, tra they're away trading. So Fort Edmonton had um, very strong, capable First Nations women, um, you know, maintaining its fences and, you know, maintaining the garden and, you know, the roofs, um, all of the food. Um, it, it was really quite amazing what they were doing. On top of the work, of course, um, making moccasins, hundreds of hundreds upon pairs of moccasins for the traders and the hundreds of pounds of pemmican to feed the traders. It was just a very bustling, smelly place, very bustling, smelly place. Amber's description of the fort should give you some idea what these settlements looked and lived like. But something that often slips the historical record is the smell of the place. One thing I want to add that's just really interesting that I love sharing with people is, is the smell of Fort Edmonton because I, I've been told that you could smell Fort Edmonton before you could see it. Um, but you, can, you could have seen it on the, on the river for like several miles <laughs> because there was no trees um, back then. They had cut them all down for firewood. So the smell, you can imagine, would have been pretty bad. And that, of course, was just the amount of dogs and, and fish and, and food and, and people who were living there was, uh, was immense. So um, a little known fact that although at Fort Edmonton we have kind of teepees and tents kind of right outside the fort, First Nations people um, would specifically camp quite a ways away from the fort because they didn't want to be by the smell. <laughs> little interesting uh, trivia there too. Over the years, Edmonton grows from a very smelly fort to a village. In 1876, Treaty 6 is signed. The treaty is one of several signed between the British Crown and Indigenous peoples who occupied the land. Accounts about the negotiation of Treaty 6 and the interpretation of the agreement are still contested. 
European concepts of land and ownership were impossible to translate because they didn't exist locally. Further, Treaty 6 was signed at a time when Indigenous people were devastated by disease and facing possible starvation due to the overhunting of bison. Treaty is a complex and challenging topic that continues to be relevant today. What we'd like to impress on you now is that for the Edmonton we know today to exist, people who had been living in this area for thousands of years were removed from their land. The development of Edmonton displaced and disenfranchised many Indigenous peoples who were instrumental in building and supporting the first settlements in Western Canada. In 1892, Edmonton was incorporated as a town with a population of 700 and later as a city in 1904 with a population of over 8,000. While fur trading continued in the 1800s, by the 20th century, Edmonton was a bustling city. Once again, the River Valley was crucial to the geography and economy of the city. Many residents lived and worked right in the valley. In 1915, the River Valley boasted a brickyard, lumber mills, a cement factory, a brewing and malting company, and a water and power station. If you're familiar with the River Valley as a park, this might come as a surprise. In the early 1900s, one event drastically changed the way Edmontonians think about and build in the River Valley. On June 27, 1915, a warning comes from Rocky Mountain House. The river is up 20 feet and still jumping. Over the next several days, Edmonton would be hit by the worst flood in its recorded history. At its peak, the river rose 10 meters. To put this into perspective, here's a little story. The current low-level bridge was built in 1900 and called the Edmonton Bridge. The bridge features a railway track connecting the then town of Edmonton to the town of Strathcona. As the river surged, the water actually reached the bottom of the bridge, threatening to rip it from its foundations. The Canadian Northern Railway Corporation created a brilliant plan to save the low-level bridge. To keep the bridge from washing away, the Canadian Northern Railway needed to weigh it down. And what's slightly heavier than a train? That's right, a train that's full of sand. Multiple cars were driven onto the bridge to weigh it down as the river rose. Engines were attached to the train cars, ready to pull the sand-filled carriages off the bridge if it became unstable at a moment's notice. You know, trains. Those things that have quick startup times, right? As much as parking a train on a bridge during a flood doesn't seem particularly intuitive, the low-level bridge is still standing, a testament to the ingenuity of man and the weight of trains. While the low-level bridge might have been saved, many other parts of the city were not. Approximately 50 buildings were destroyed, and 2,000 people were displaced from their homes. Another consequence of the flood is the loss of archaeological data in our historic river valley. I've only ever approached those floods from kind of the perspective on what they erased, because those floods kind of erased a lot of indications of, of the stuff I was kind of just talking about. Particularly, we see the complete obliteration of the Rossdale Cemetery, where there once was marble headstones um, for early Fort Edmonton's, you know, traders. And um, it was also um, a historic burial ground going back 8,000 years of timeless um, internment. So that is probably the only insight I can give as to those floods, is just how much they erased 
of course, there was a lot of other middlemen in all of that as well. But um, those floods, um, they really uh, completely um, removed that from the landscape. We've seen the riverbanks as a provider, giving shelter, food and material, as a gathering space and the center of a trade network, and as a danger with the flood that devastated the early city of Edmonton. Our journey through the history of the River Valley and what it means to the people that live in the Edmonton area is not over. Thank you to our storytellers, Edmonton Historian Laureate Amber Paquette and Dr. Dwayne Donald. They'll be back with us next week to continue our look at the history of the River Valley. Until then, stay safe. And if you have a free minute, take a walk through the Edmonton River Valley and find yourself surrounded by centuries of history. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. All our content is created by a team of volunteers. For more information on these and other stories, visit our website, www.terrainforma.ca. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. See you next week, right here on Terra Informa.